corporations have a moral obligation to society? That's the subject of this week's episode of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and my guest is Mac McKenzie, co-founder of the Bridge Partnership Asia and the Bridge Institute. It's safe to say that over the course of history, companies have been viewed through the lens of profit. Causes that speak to social justice, racial and gender equality, and even environmental protection were left over the years to nonprofit, religious, and government institutions. Unfortunately for them, public perception with respect to their effectiveness has all but collapsed. Only corporations, apparently, have withstood public scrutiny and are seen today as the last bastion of trust and competency. In some ways, that's a scary thought, but regardless, it puts new impetus on companies to step it up. Even for the holdout CEO who says, it's not my department, there's no stopping consumers from wanting it to be so. It's a dilemma for the for-profit sector, but an opportunity as well. At the heart of it is trust. And if you watched as I did as rabid Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol after the President of the United States lied about the election outcome, then it's not hard to wonder how public trust in government is in rapid decline. The same is true in China, where attempts to cover up the COVID-19 outbreak created a public outcry. And in Russia earlier this week, protests erupted in over a hundred cities with tens of thousands demanding an end to political corruption. Trust in government from Moscow to Beijing and Washington, D.C. has plummeted. Some say it's the early makings of a societal vacuum. There are few institutions left in the world that have the resources and the ability to move the dial in the realm of social justice. Bridge Consulting is trying to test the limits on what companies feel they can and can't do. It's raising some interesting questions, and consumers in Asia, it appears, are hoping to see more from companies in the months and years ahead. Here's my conversation with Mac. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm glad we have a chance to do it, uh, Mac. So uh, let's get started. And this is a conversation which largely encompasses a journey. And I'd like to start with your personal journey. How did you arrive in Asia? Um, Through which route? And a little bit about the uh, partnership. Around 15 years ago, I... I had this kind of profound realization of the importance of leadership. And I noticed that when beautiful things happened in the world, uh, right at the heart of it were very purpose-led, courageous leaders. And often when there was tragedy in the world, there was often a vacuum of leadership. And I felt that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping creating more purpose-led leaders uh, in the world and went looking for the most Uh, inspiring organization to help me do that. And and that's how the the journey started. I'd I'd spent a year in South America and in Central America as a a mountain guide and working for different NGOs. And I just saw just the inequality uh, in action firsthand, and it had a really big impact on me. And uh, and I, I just remember the flight back to, uh, to Europe where I was living at the time, just saying, um, I, I want to, you know, to 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 make a difference, and um, and uh, it really inspired me. Uh, my time in Central and South America. And how did you land on Bridge Consultancy? Well, I was climbing uh, with someone who'd been impacted by by the organization, you know, thirty years ago, and he just uh, turned around to me uh, on the mountain and just said, "You've got to meet the 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 the, the founders of this organization." And he said he said it had changed his life more than anything else and his, his view of the world. And he just said, you should, you should meet uh, these, the, the founders are called Lee and Jerry. And, uh, and then he connected us, connected us up. That's how it all started. 
And when you did meet them, what was different? What struck you, Mac? I just think that they, they are, I think they have a sense of outrage about the inequality. I think both of them have come from that place. And, um, and I think they are, you know, uh, systemic thinkers who see how you, how the role of leadership and how the role of people can actually make a difference. I think they, they both have got uh, brilliant minds and the way that we have gone about the work uh, has been formed a lot by their starting thinking. And tell us a little bit about that work. What kinds of consultancies do you get involved in? So the, the, the big things that we do are we help leaders build their organizations to be both commercially successful and a stronger force for good in the world. And that requires a lot of different things to happen uh, for that to be possible. Uh, the North Star of the organization needs to be determined. Uh, the leaders need to become what we call societal leaders, people who live for a purpose of the greater good. Um, and obviously things like the strategy and the culture all need to be aligned. And so for 30 years, we've been helping what we think some of the most progressive organizations in the world to be able to be that force for good in the world and successful at the same time, what we call that dual purpose. So while corporate purpose is the flavor of the day, um, you all have been doing this for quite some time. Um, is it a bit ironic? Do you find it, uh, are you pleased and relieved that the rest of the world is catching up? Or were you on to something um, for reasons that a lot of other organizations didn't fully understand at least 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great question. I think, I mean, I think, you know, if you look in the history of corporate, corporate history, there have been many, many examples of organizations who have stood for uh, the good of time, you know, and, uh, you know, Unilever is an example. One started with a very strong purpose. Um, and um, so I think it's not something that's new, um, but I think that, and especially since COVID-19, I think it, the business leaders have been woken up to the importance of how you do business without uh, damaging uh, the planet and without, without damaging uh, or increasing inequality. And I think that that trend is going to significantly accelerate, uh, which I'm personally really, really pleased about because I think that businesses are perhaps the strongest force uh, in the world. And if all business leaders um, wake up and go, I'm going to make the world a better place, I think our future generations have uh, a lot of hope. What's this interplay between the partnership and the institute? Could you explain how that works? Yeah, see, again, talking about one of the founders in 2012, I was uh, in Hong Kong with Jerry, uh, Jerry Connor, and, uh, and I noticed that, you know, that we, the people that we were serving were the most advantaged and the most lucky people, you know, senior business leaders who have, you know, had often had great education and, um, and, and are saying that we should be taking all the methods that we've learned over these decades and take them to the big challenges of our time. And uh, Jerry is a, you know, he's a great uh, mentor of, of mine and he, he fully supported and all my colleagues at Bridge got behind that. And we said, let's take our work. And, um, and that's, how the, that, that's how the journey started. And, um, and then we formed uh, a not-for-profit with a, a board of trustees called the Bridge Institute. How did you identify some of your earliest projects? Um, we decided to, to be bold and to go for really complex and pressing challenges. And uh, perhaps the biggest one that we are 
working on right now is the combating of trafficking of women and children uh, with a focus right now in Asia, but right now we're actually expanding that focus to becoming a global focus. And, uh, and the reason that we chose that is, you know, the, you know, the ILO uh, forecasts or estimates the amount of people in modern slavery is just over 40 million people. Um, and just the needle of progress on combating trafficking uh, is, is just not moving fast enough. We don't really know what is happening, but the indicators are uh, that it's not good. And I think with COVID-19, we're seeing a spike of things like child marriage, which obviously ex exacerbates uh, trafficking, et cetera. So we decided to go for stuff that was really important, had a very strong human meaning and something that corporates and governments and civil society can all get involved in. Mac, you wouldn't have been the first to try to tackle this problem. There have been NGOs throughout the decades. Governments have been involved. Um, you've got uh, philanthropers, uh, ph philanthropists of all sorts that have stepped in. Uh, what do you do differently or what approach are you taking that uh, is uh, you hope to make a difference? Yeah, there's there's some you know really really inspiring organisations uh, and government leaders who are doing incredible work in this space. Um, so I'll just quickly just take a couple of examples just to say. Uh, so there's a, a man called uh, Dr. Praveen Kumar who's based in Telangana. He's a senior police officer, and he has done some incredible work in edu in building schools and helping you know. Uh, educate uh, children who wouldn't have got an education. Um, and I think he, people like him uh, are making such a huge difference to hundreds of thousands of people. And education is obviously one of the key things that you can do to stop trafficking because the root cause of it is a lot is around lack of education and poverty. And then you get all uh, other NGOs like FXB Sereksha, which again is an NGO focused on um, on on halting the trafficking routes um, and working with police forces in Asia on that. And again, doing incredible work. The place that we, we sit is in the ecosystem of bringing the ecosystem together. So we bring government leaders, we bring uh, NGO leaders, we bring corporate leaders into the same space and into the same process. And you know, I know obviously these NGOs and these government leaders and I know that this, this uh, work that we do is greatly valued by them uh, because I think make working relationships across government, business and civil society is really hard. And we, we get into that space and then facilitate the process from there. So it's a, it's a building on the amazing work that they're doing. Well, break that down. I mean, specifically, what do you do? Is, the, is it a matter of miscommunication? Is it organization? Is it, you know, failed, um, you know, understanding the way behaviors are influencing negatively or positively the different changes? Where exactly do you get involved? And why would all these organizations with so many uh, agendas um, open up and say, sure, Bridge, uh, come on in and, and help us out here? Where were they failing and where are you helping? Well, I think the, what we're noticing, if we, if we look at, say, the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, the UN Global Goals set in 2015, setting out the challenges of our time. And for me, if you look at all of them, if not all of them, if not, you know, um, they are all what we would describe as systemic challenges. So what a systemic challenge means is that not one person or one institution can solve the challenge. It means that everything is interrelated 
It means that you need to come together for the long haul. It means that you need to have really strong levels of trust and a strong shared purpose across the whole ecosystem. And so I think that just as the world is developing, we're noticing that the need of coming together uh, is becoming greater and greater. We're noticing the interconnections between government, business, and civil society are becoming greater. The interconnections of, of na na nations to global are becoming greater. And I think it's just this point in time when we're realizing that if you're a government leader, you simply, you know, with all the money in the world, you simply cannot combat trafficking. If you're a business leader, you can't combat it on your own, or if you're an NGO. But if you bring the three together and you break down those boundaries, things start opening up that you wouldn't have seen before. So I don't look at it as someone's failings, whatever. I think I look at it much more that the nature is systemic and we need to come together and create these platforms of coming together, but in a facilitated way where there's, a, there's planning, there's thinking, and then there's doing. Perhaps, Mac, but I think um, some of the NGOs and even government departments have been blamed for becoming overly myopic focused on their agendas instead of the agenda. Uh, and so you do see a breakdown of communication, not because people feel that communicating is a bad thing, but because somehow they re recognize that to be refunded, you need to demonstrate uh, work that you, you set out to do um, and then therefore point back to it. So it becomes mitered. In, in the kinds of processes and cycles year in, year out, and yet the core problems persist. Child trafficking has not gone away. If anything, um, I think there's been a rise in recent years, has there not? Um, and, and so it does point to, not failings, but at least uh, um, shortcomings, I'd say, um, that do require some change uh, management, which I suspect is what you're working on. You're helping them look at the problem from a different, uh, through a different lens. Would that be correct? Yeah, I, th I, th I think it is correct. I think, you know, again, if moving away from the subject of, of trafficking into, say, COVID-19, when you see cooperative responses, you see a fundamentally different outcome in, in what is being achieved. So I think with any of these challenges that we're facing, if we come together and we don't uh, break down trust or speak badly or push people away or shame people, then we have a, we have a fighting chance. If we, take, if we push people away and we make it us versus them, we don't talk to our enemies, then uh, I think the chances of, of success are very small. So I think that's how I would look at it. In, in stakeholder capitalism, one of the stakeholder groups are communities in locations where an uh, organization operates. Um, many of the MNCs operating in Asia are right in the field where some of these child trafficking issues are occurring. Um, how do companies get involved? And in, in the work you've seen to date, it does feel a little bit like companies are um, at least donating money or doing charity uh, or um, raising awareness around what they call, you know, corporate social responsibility, but it doesn't feel fundamental to what a company um, is, is doing day in, day out. In other words, um, these types of activities haven't yet set in as part of the DNA. What transition is required and what do corporations need to do in order to bring this right into the organization and practice stakeholder capitalism the way it was meant? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that for most leaders, they don't, corporate leaders, they don't realize how much impact they could make. And it often depends on the sector that you're, you're in. So if you're, say, for example, in financial services, there is an enormous amount of things you can do to track the actions of traffickers or if, if, if someone has got opened up a bank account who has been trafficked, there is a certain behavior of the way that they work. So banks, for example, globally can do an awful amount to combat trafficking. You know, it's a $150 billion industry a year. It's a huge industry. And, uh, and right now, a lot of banks are funding it unconsciously. Um, so that will be one example of what a, I think a, uh, one corporate can do. I think in terms of uh, in employees, obviously, who you recruit, your supply chains um, are all important things uh, to, to look at. And, you know, and even going down to the point about, just say, gender, uh, gender uh, equality, just the way that if you're an organization that isn't supporting gender equality, all of this mindset then plays out further down the line. If we don't, if we stand on the sidelines and just say, this is not okay. So it starts at, you know, at, at a fundamental respect level. And I think all of these things then have ripple effects out. So um, I think there is a huge amount that corporates can do. Um, we're seeing a lot of banks starting to come together in our, our, our fellowship, which is focusing on trafficking. We're starting to bring in some really inspiring banks into the process. Um, and, um, and I think there's a, there's a huge amount to go after. Um, the, the last thing I'd just quickly just say about trafficking is the, is the driver of trafficking is, 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 is sometimes it's for labor and forced labor. Sometimes it's for commercial sex. Sometimes it's for forced marriages. Sometimes it's for, you know, stealing babies. Uh, sometimes it's for uh, stealing uh, human organs. So all of these things are driving. And so every corporate can do something to aid, to, to reduce the demand and uh, and 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 stop the stop the supply chain. So, so Mac, is it Bridge Institute's intention or ambition to raise awareness around tra- child trafficking in order to bring corporates into the problem-solving mix, or is it your um, objective to work with corporates to help them identify which community projects and which areas for which reasons are most relevant for them? I think it's just to get them involved in the in the whole in the whole ecosystem. In our process, we don't we don't dictate what they should or should not do, but we have trust that when they get involved, we know that they will go and do something very meaningful from this. So, as an example, one of the big corporates that we worked with in India in 2017, they realised that if a woman is abducted and then put into the sex trade. Um, and then they, she's rescued, her family won't, and her community often won't accept them back. And so what she realized is she employed many, many people is that they, she gave targets to say, these are the amount of people coming out of uh, the, the, the sex trade, rescued from the sex trade that we will recruit and gave her company targets to get those women into their talent uh, systems. And that, again, I think is an incredibly inspiring uh, example of what corporates can do, because often we shun and push away unconsciously 
the people who are on the margins of society and just by bringing them right heart in, right into the heart of what we, of our organizations, I think is a very powerful thing to do. And even if it's 10 people a year you do, or 20 or whatever, that is transformative in itself. At what point um, did you identify this as the cause that you would put time and attention into? What, why did this one uh, capture your imagination or the imagination of the Institute versus any number of others? Um, it, it, it came through, we, we asked a number of stakeholders what they thought were the biggest issues um, that we could work and make a big difference in. And, um, and it came from some advice. And then uh, Shashi Vilath, who's the executive trustee of the Bridge Institute, and I, we spent three days in uh, northern Orissa um, with police, a police, the police force, going to see trafficking firsthand. Um, and so we went into villages where every girl had been trafficked by the age of 14. We went to police stations and I met five children who couldn't have been older than eight years old, who'd been rescued um, none of them knew where they had been abducted from or where their families were. And I think just the, those experiences, which is what we give to all of our fellows um, when they join our fellowships, really bring home how important this issue is. Our dream is to take this method to all of the SDGs um, to take it to, you know, we've done small bits of, uh, so we've done fellowships in water and water security. We've done fellowships in education and education reform over the years. Um, we've done it, uh, you know, around peace building as well. And, but our dream is uh, to take it to all the SDGs because we think this is what's needed across the whole piece. Hmm. Let's talk about the corporates. What's the messaging? When, when you walk in to meet uh, a, a designated member of a corporate team, I guess it could be anybody from um, head of sales to the CEO to head of HR. Uh, I, I guess it would depend. Um, what are they? What are you saying to them? What, what are you encouraging them to do in order to get started? So um, I think some of the key messages that we say is the world is changing around us extremely quick, quickly. Um, we... You know, if you look at millennials who are now, you know, a significant part of the workforce, they're more purposeful than, uh, than their generations that preceded them. Um, employees care more about working for purpose-led organizations than ever before. Customers care more than ever before. And we're seeing this, especially in Asia, where customers are shifting their purchasing behavior um, because whether, whether the brand stands for good or not. So we're seeing in India, 89% of consumers saying that, tr that whether the brand stands for good is hugely important. China is 69%, South Korea, 73%. We're seeing um, that globally that, that being purpose-led is one of the top five criterias now in purchasing decisions. You know, 81% of consumers say, that matters to me uh, in terms of whether I buy that product or not. And again, if you look at um, COVID-19, 44% of consumers uh, surveyed have said that they have changed their behavior uh, if the company has stood for good during these times. So we're seeing some really big changes 
in employees and in customers and in the financial markets. Uh, whether it's fast enough is another question. Um, but what we're saying is you've got five, 10 years to respond. Um, and, uh, and if you don't, it's a huge risk. That's kind of, yeah, the, some of the, some of the kind of the, the macro stuff. And then we talk about the benefits of what this will bring to their organization from an innovation and motivation perspective, which we could talk about. Those consumer awareness figures are shockingly high for many of these markets. Um, would you say that many of the markets in Asia are leaders or laggards compared to Europe or North America? In other words, is this conscientious uh, a consumer uh, a phenom that's that's growing and rising rapidly in this part of the world? And, and obviously that would be helping your cause, I suspect, yes? So we are seeing that the increase of importance is, is accelerating in, in, in China um, and in India and South Korea and Asia on the whole. So there is a shift, but also where, where it came from, um, I remember the Edelman, uh, so the, the, one of the data that I use is the Edelman Trust Barometer. And I remember looking at the 2012 numbers, you know, eight years ago, and 80% of Chinese consumers said, that they would pay a premium for companies that stood for good. And so I think it was 71%, 72% of the Indian market. And then Malaysia was number four. So, you know, the top three of the top four countries are where consumers will pay a premium if you stand for good is in Asia and it's accelerating. So, um, so I think it's, 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 it's a really interesting part of the world to be in right now. Yeah. What would be um, the type of change that you would hope to see um, with corporations being effective with these communities? In other words, it's one thing to raise awareness. It's another thing to get their attention. Uh, and then it's all about the execution. I'm finding that increasingly there's hope um, that we see greater number of public-private partnerships. In other words, government has been left to its own devices. Corporations have been fine to say, well, that's their turf, not ours. Um, you know, let's not get, you know, get involved. There's other things we need to be doing. But I do pick up now um, feeling that particularly in a time of COVID when resources are down, governments need corporate support in ways like they never have before. Um, are you seeing this as well? And, and, and again, how could corporations do the most at this time, given the current situation? So, yes, I think it's really important. So a recent McKinsey study this year uh, found that 82% of, of employees and businesses said that purpose was incredibly important. Yes, only 42% said that they saw it meaningfully applied uh, in their decision making. So I think it is incredibly important. And then what we would advise a corporate to do in this was, the first thing is this concept of what we should call purposeful advantage. So if you imagine a Venn diagram of three overlapping circles, uh, the first is the, your organization's capabilities. What are you the best in the world at or can be best in the world at? The second circle is what does your market need? And then the third is what does society need? And if you can find that sweet spot that, that is in the middle of those three circles, we say that you're going to be financially very successful. You know, it, it's not a silver bullet, but if you get everything else right, you'll be financially very successful. Your customers will be more loyal to you. Your employees will stay with you and you'll be solving the global goals of our time. Um, 
the Business and Sustainable Development Commission has estimated that there is $12 trillion of untapped opportunities um, in, in the world um, where you can tap into and solve the sustainable development goals and make money. This, is, this study has been peer-reviewed by many economists. Some of the peer reviews I've seen estimated it might be as high as $36 trillion. So there is huge opportunity, you know, in, if you're in the food industry about reforming food and using future-fit crops, if you're in insurance about using telehealth, uh, there's all of these game-changing uh, business opportunities uh, that businesses can go after. So I think if, if you can find that purposeful advantage and go after those big opportunities, that will, uh, that will make all the difference. Um, there's lots of other things that we, we talk about to be, to be genuinely purpose-led that you need to do, but I maybe talk about that later. Well, you raise a really good point, Mac, which is, um, you know, you know it, it's not just about uh, philanthropy or charity or giving away resources. It's really about identifying new commercial opportunities and doing good at the same time. Um, yes. And I think that's been undersold. If anything, uh, the big question that comes up for us uh, when, when we're speaking with clients is, can profit and purpose coexist? And uh, oftentimes it can. It's just on, yeah. it depends on how well executed the plan is as opposed to conceived and executed. So I, I, I think what you're saying, I mean, just to, to, to come back full circle, even with um, human trafficking or child trafficking or, you know, it, it, it speaks to so many different levels, doesn't it? It's gender equality, it's education, it's access, it's opportunity, um, it's, it's employment. I mean, you've got all kinds of things which are basically falling by the wayside because of failure of the system to protect those who need protecting and to basically boost them where they need boosting. And so the degree to which organizations can get involved in that, well, there's there may not be direct uh, positive benefit, but absolutely indirect positive benefit, isn't there? Just from the way that a society starts to look and, and treat women and children to some degree. Is that not right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, the case for direct and indirect is, is, is incredibly compelling. Um, Rasha Sodia, who is one of the co-authors of Conscious Capitalism, has recently done his eva financial evaluation of purpose-led organizations. And he's concluded that over the last 15 years, the ones that he describes as purpose-led uh, have outperformed on aggregate return. Their ret well, their aggregate return has been 1,681% versus the S&P 500 of 118%. So they, the, the, the financial case, I think, is, is, is incredibly compelling already. And then other things that I think are direct benefits are things like innovation. If I may just share the story of uh, CVS in the US, if people don't know the story, but it's an incredible story of innovation. You know, so they're a retailer. So it's a, it's a, pharma it's a pharmaceutical retail chain and, uh, and they decided their purpose was about promoting health and making, making their consumers healthy. And the rub was, as all other pharmaceutical retailers was, was that they sold cigarettes and they sold $2 billion of cigarettes a year. And they made the decision um, bravely uh, to, to stop cigarettes. And, but the organization uh, innovated and created a product that helps cigarettes, uh, smokers stop smoking. And actually the financial consequences of that decision uh, were very positive. It transformed their relationship with consumers and their standing in society because there was no rub anymore. 
and uh, and they were the first uh, pharmaceutical retailer to do that. So for me, if you really stand for good and you take the brave calls as the CEO and executive committee, it sends such a message to your employees to innovate and and uh, stand for good. So there's a, there's many many uh, stories of the direct benefits if you really make this core to the work that you do. Traditionally, I've noticed uh, many corporate leaders have operated at the top um, with with an aspect of risk aversion. In other words, let's stay conservative, let's stay narrowly focused, let's basically make sure we hit our quarterlies, and all will be good. But we're seeing now that um, that's no longer good enough. In fact, it's just getting you through. Um, and there are too many stakeholder interests at play which impact or influence what goes on with your business. So the message to CEOs out there is be mindful, wake up, be brave, and do the right thing. And it, it sounds kind of like a Boy Scout motto, doesn't it? You know, just go do the right thing. But increasingly, it's showing that it yields results. What advice could you give to a CEO, an Asia CEO, who's sitting down trying to figure out how to make this move without risking it all? So I'd, I'd say that, you know, so first of all, just quickly just talk about uh, Unilever's journey and because and, and, I think there's so many lessons to be learned from that. And, uh, and then I'll then say what the advice I would give. So Paul Polman is a very famous story, well known that in 2009, he, as he became CEO, he did a couple of really, I think, quite courageous or very courageous things. The first was he said that he wasn't going to do quarterly reporting within the first two weeks of taking on the role, clearly risking his job, I think. And, uh, and then secondly, he, he launched the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, uh, which set out targets of what they were going to do as an organization on waste, on water, on nutrition, on sustainable farming, uh, on gender equality and went public with those statements. And so we don't know how to do all this, but we're gonna do this. And they did, over those 10 years, they, they achieved what they set out to do. They're one of the first, if not the first MNC, to have total gender equality across the organization from boards, executive committees, to senior leadership across the world. So they set the targets and went public with it. Um, and, and then they got out of the quarterly, the pressure of the short-term quarterly reporting. So. My advice would be now is that was a, a pioneering act by Paul Polman. Uh, I think no one really disputes that. But we're now on an inflection point that if you don't do it, the risks of not doing it are now going to be greater. Uh, um, you know, so, but, so in short, now is the time to do it. Uh, you've probably got uh, five, depending which sector you're in, 10 years to act. Hmm. I'm seeing the multinationals uh, take the lead on this one. Um, I guess that's typically where it is, whether it's digital transformation or uh, supply chain efficiencies or whatever the case may be. They're the ones with the resources, global reach, you know, recruitment capabilities, so understandable. But it does feel to some degree that um, if Asia-based conglomerates, organizations don't take note, um, and step up in their own right, um, there's a chance that this could undermine their ability to continue to grow and profit in their own markets. Would, would, is, is that too much of a stretch of a comment, or do you believe that there's, there's legitimacy to that concern? I think, I think there's total legitimacy to that concern. I think Asia, as you know, the statistics I was saying earlier on in terms of the changing consumer and employee uh, attitudes, I think are great or greater here in Asia than they are in other parts of the world. 
Um, so I think it's a very legitimate concern. If you are a CEO or senior leader or a local or a, a, um, a local or an international business. Mac, if uh, listeners wanted to learn more about your organization and some of the ideas you're proffering here, where would they go? So uh, if you're a corporate leader, uh, thank you for asking, Steve, um, would be to go to bridgepartnership.com. And, uh, and we've just got, we've got a, a number of case, do- uh, case studies there of corporates who we think have just really stood for, for good in the world. Um, and if you're interested uh, in the bigger societal challenges, uh, to go to bridge-institute.org, where you can see some of the work we're doing there as well. Mac, we thank you. We thank you for the good work you're doing and uh, a pleasure spending time with you. It's a privilege. Thank you, Steve. That was my conversation with Mac McKenzie, co-founder of Bridge Partnership Asia and the Bridge Institute. The firm represents one of many emerging service organizations committed to helping companies identify what it means to be purpose-driven. As our conversation demonstrated, it can take on many forms and result in any number of initiatives, both internally and externally. Hitting on the right formula is increasingly the responsibility of business leaders who see not only the need, but the wisdom in thinking about what needs to be done, then doing it. What's less clear is the line drawn between a company's fiduciary responsibility and its obligations to improve any or all facets of social well-being. Most believe that companies should carve out time and effort to work with charities, volunteer in their communities, or donate to good causes. There's resistance, however, to the idea of bringing these practices into the heart of its daily operations. No one is suggesting that companies sacrifice their P&L for doing good deeds, but as mentioned earlier, there are few institutions left in the world that have the resources, the wherewithal, and the public confidence to tackle some of the bigger challenges left untended by governments and nonprofits. To be a CEO in this environment is both troubling and enthralling. In no time in history has the corporation been in a better position to over-deliver. For those who tackle and solve the thorniest problems, the benefits will outstrip anything known to date. Happy customers, loyal employees, delighted shareholders, and thriving communities. Sounds like a capitalist nirvana, doesn't it? For those who ignore the call to service and stay focused on profits only, short-term gains will be had, but at the expense of long-term survival. Realigning incentives would help. As currently provided, CEO compensation is tied to financial results. It's a Wall Street world, and as long as higher compensation is hitched to quarterly performance, it would be unfair to expect CEOs to behave any differently than they do now. It's just one of many changes necessary in order for corporate purpose to thrive. It's a strange new world, and in the weeks and months ahead, our Inside Asia episodes will pay increasing attention to the nuances of corporate purpose, the art of delivering on the promise, and what it takes to make the transition while remaining profitable. Asia is uniquely positioned to execute on purpose. Our job is to inform and highlight ways of doing it, so stay tuned. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you like what you hear, share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 160 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. We cover all things relating to Asia, its rising influence, the technologies that power it, and the politics that sustain it. Share our programs however you see fit. 
And if you don't already subscribe to our newsletter, you can do so by visiting us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Is there a topic you want to know more about? Let us know by leaving a message on any of our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. And as always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.